This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Gogo. I'm Dr. Shane, and I'm joined in the studio by two of our favourite presenters. Good morning, Dr. Crystal. Good morning, Dr. Shane. Are you well? I am very well, and I'm looking forward to an afternoon of gardening after the show. <laughs> well, you can listen to Dirty Deeds. Oh, I know. How yeah. good is that? Indeed. And ring them up if you have a problem. Oh, I will. Yes. On speed dial. And we have Dr. Jennifer Henry in the studio, which is rare. That uh, I'm not used to this show being a Sunday morning thing, because oh, to me, for seven years, it's been a Saturday night show. Yeah. <laughs> so what time is it in New York right now? Right now it is 7 p.m. on oh. Saturday night. We haven't even started drinking yet, let alone waking up. No, well, this is a wake-up show. This is where people, they're just crawling out. You know, there may be uh, the bacon eggs have been dished up to absorb the alcohol from night four. That's what this show's about. We, we, we couldn't do that. I don't think we could do this Saturday night. Very different vibe. Uh, yeah, I, I wouldn't, no. No, it's not going to work. Anyway, we better get into some science because we have a massive show today, folks. We've got um, quite a few interviews coming up. Uh, in particular, we're speaking to Mark Levinson, who's the director of the movie Particle Fever, which I was lucky enough to get to see last night and starts this week. So that will be uh, coming up soon. And then we have some other undergraduates from uh, Monash who have been doing very well in the publication space. We'll talk to them. They'll be in the studio. And then we've got uh, James Godwin, who is from the also from the Australian Regenerative Medicine Institute and we've had a few of those guests on over the uh, last few weeks. We'll have him on the phone as well. So we're jam-packed. We're going to get into some news straight away. Um, Dr. Crystal, do you want to boot this off? Dr. Shane, are you a man or a mouse? <laughs> last I a human, A human or a, a human. mouse? I'm a human. And can you tell by looking at your genome? Uh, I'm hoping there's a little bit more in it. <laughs> I'm not sure. <laughs> well, this week in uh, Science and Nature, uh, some large publications came out that were looking at the mouse genome and how it compares to the human genome. And I guess uh, it kind of like when, before we'd sequence the human genome, scientists were making estimates of how many genes the human genome mm. would have. And people were like, oh, we must have 100,000 genes because if a worm, if a, if a lowly worm has 20,000 and we're far more complicated than that, we must have a million genes. Um, <laughs> and of course, when... <laughs> That's the, arrogance for you. Yeah, I know. It, it was this idea that that genetic complexity had to come with the number of genes that you had. Mm, right. And then when the human genome was sequenced and it was worked out that we probably only had, a, originally they thought we had around 30,000 genes, and that number has actually been slowly creeping further and further down. And some, some estimates think we actually only have 19,000 genes, which is... Less not, than the worm. Which is, yeah, less than, and less awesome. than lots of other organisms because yeah. it's not the genes that you have, it's what you do with them oh, that, that old counts. Chestnut. It's true. <laughs> and, and that's what this study um, looking at the mouse genome and the human genome has brought out in the fact that um, when it comes to your DNA sequence, certain regions of that are instructions on how to make proteins and that's really what you know dna is the blueprint of life it's the instructions on how to make a protein but only only a very small portion of the genome actually encodes for proteins and the rest of it people used to think about as being junk dna but it turns out that this junk dna it actually contains all these really essential elements that we don't call genes because you know genes make proteins but the rest of the sequence actually makes uh, things that control how we use those genes and when we make the proteins and when we don't. So bits that tell, hey, gene, you're a kidney cell, you need to make some kidney proteins now. And hey, gene, you're a brain cell, you need to make some brain proteins now because you don't want your kidney cell making the brain proteins. Yeah. So um, and, and so it's that level of sophistication that you get not by what genes you have, but by when and how they're switched on and off. Mm. And 
And so, and that's actually quite different between mice and humans. So even though humans and mice have um, similar genes, so you might have a, a gene in a mouse that's very similar in a human. So you might think, great, well, we'll um, do some drug tests for a gene that we know is involved in Alzheimer's in a mouse, and in a human, and we'll do the testing in a mouse. It might be but that gene's actually controlled differently in mice and humans. So even though mm. the gene's there, um, how it's controlled may be quite different. And that actually might have big implications for um, the way we use animal testing um, to compare what happens in a mouse to what happens in a human. Well, given you're trying to change the way those genes are, and I'll use your term, expressed, or proteins are expressed from those genes, you would figure the control mechanism is actually more important to know about than the gene itself in many cases. It could be. Especially where there's an error occurring. And and so it may be that different disease pathways um, where the genes are going wrong so to speak in terms of being disease causing um it may be more or less relevant to use those models so it's a great insight into um if we're going to use mice to study human diseases now we have an extra set of tools which allow us to know whether or not that's going to be a useful way of going about it Mm. and for some things it's going to be it's going to actually be really beneficial and say yes we definitely want to use this as a model and some conditions might say actually no that that that's not going to translate from species to species so it's allowing us to be more sophisticated in the way we make comparisons between mouse genomes and human genomes. Yeah. Well, it's good news that we're doing that. Yeah. I think, I think we, we, we need to get that right. I mean, if we're going to use another animal for our benefit at our whim, which which is what it's about, then we, at the very least we need to make it as effective as possible. Yeah, mate, at the we need very to make least. conscious yeah. decisions that are accurate and based on data, and so this is going to absolutely mm. widen that up. Yep, interesting. Dr. Jennifer. Hello. Also, also along the uh, mice uh, model experience, I read about some interesting research coming out of Zurich this week that's shown that traumatic experiences in childhood can alter your behavioural response, not only in this individual but in the offspring. So what they did is get newborn mice and expose them to various forms of stress and then they let those mice have offspring and let them grow up to adults and then tested their behaviour And they found that particularly in the male mice, exposure to stress from the parent led to increased what they call goal-directed behaviours and behavioural flexibility in the adult offspring. So this is great news for fathers who feel stressed. Your yet-to-be-born children (laughs) will grow up to be more resilient adults. Oh, that's great. Yeah. I've been a very stressed individual most of my life. (laughs) Well, keep having children and they'll be resilient when they're adults. I I think I have to check with my wife on that number. (laughs) That's not a choice. Scientifically, it's to do with epigenetic modification in the hippocampus and to do with histones associated with the mineralocorduroid receptor, which is involved in your stress response. So Mm. I think this is a potential use of mice models that could be beneficial for humans' behaviour and understanding that not only as previously thought that the negative effects of stress can be passed on, but there are are also some beneficial effects of stress being passed on to your offspring. Jeez. Mm, you know, can, I, can I be controversial on this one? I, I don't think that's a good use of mice at all, I have to say. I, I think that's where we're going a bit far, in, in my opinion. I mean, there's some things I'll accept, and that one I, I don't. I think that's, that's going, that is a bit of a convenience for you us. You think because it's just about stress rather than actually making well, a drug or something that well, might kill I just, you? Well, I just think, you know, <laughs> I can, it's just the way you described it with, you know, stressing these baby mice. It's just, jeez, you know, really? Is that the only way we can look at this? Are there no other options? Can we not look at meta study, you know, looking at large bits of data of our actual community? 
community which fathers were stressed, which weren't, and looking at resilience of kids. Do we have to start using mice for that? But does that data exist is the question. So, well, do know, we look? And, or do we look? Yeah. And are we putting enough resources into collecting that kind mm. of information? And do people want that kind of information collected and yeah. stored and analysed? So sometimes those... And, and I think that generally Australia and a lot of the world could be doing more in that public health space Absolutely. to be collecting that kind of informative data. But in the absence of that... This is what our only other tool, our our, our, our tool mm. that's available. So big I'm a, questions. I'm a bit sitter there on the on the justification of that one. I have to say, I think that big um, questions on how we use our resources. Yeah, it's a very controlled experiment if you do it in the mice. If you're comparing adult stress to adult stress, there's so many variables in there. I think it's hard to make meaningful conclusions from that. Yeah, I, I still say that that's never a justification for doing it. Um, that's a a part of doing it, but it's not necessarily a justification. So, anyway, interesting, interesting. I'm in an animal liberation kind of mood this morning, didn't I? I've noticed. Yeah, you know, happens to me every now and then. Hey, uh, so you will be a vegetarian for the rest of the day? <laughs> Probably. <laughs> that was going to happen anyway. Um, Cancel was, that barbecue. Yeah, you know. Um, now, we, uh, we landed on a comet last week. Yay! Old news. Move on. Oh, no, it's actually that was pretty good, but um, we do need to move on because there is a lot of amazing stuff happening um, out there in the solar system at the moment, and we're only a few days away now, about a month away, from the um, wake up of the New Horizons probe. So this is the probe that in 2006 was launched by NASA to go out to Pluto former planet Pluto. Um, to, in fact, I think it was a planet in 2006. That's the best part. And this would be the first time we've ever had a craft out out around Pluto to look at, you know, even what the, the planet even looks like, let alone take any detailed readings. So it's, it's exciting stuff. It will get there, and I've been saying this pretty much all year, but it will get there midway through... Um, 2015, so we're, gonna, we're talking about July for the close flyby. So it's not there yet. Not there yet. Um, but one of the amazing things about this craft is that if, if you think about the, the journey, I mean, you're out in a very high radiation zone you know, around the sun. You're not protected by the Earth anymore. There's a lot of potential damage to the craft. There's a lot of wear and tear if the thing's running for 10 years. So what they do is they tend to put these things to sleep. They, you know, they essentially put them in standby mode. And this one's been asleep for about two-thirds of its journey. And it's actually had quite a number of sleep cycles that they've woken it up from at periodic sort of times. Just to practice or to well, no, realign to, things? No, to, so, so they wake it up to make sure everything's going and, and, you know, keep it on track, get some telemetry of where it is, so forth. But most importantly, while it's asleep, there's no wear and tear on any of its instruments or any of its, uh, its equipment. So it, it enables it to have a much longer lifetime. And so, to, you know, it's a pretty good way to go when you're heading out to something that, you know, to be fair, is an extraordinarily uh, large distance um, from the Earth. So, you know, I mean, Pluto's about almost 40 times. Um, if you take the, the, well, take the distance from the Earth to the Sun, Pluto's about 40, just under 40 times that distance. So it's a long way out um, to the point where we don't even know how many moons Pluto has. So the current count is five, and we've reported over the last year the additional ones that have been spotted by the Hubble Space Telescope, and these are important. You're sending a spacecraft out there, you might want to know what's sort of orbiting the planet you're about to orbit <laughs> um so we don't know yet but that information's you know starting to come in it will start taking data as it gets closer so that it can make its own determination of whether or not it has more objects to avoid but this is um this is really interesting stuff because it will be um the, the first time we've sort of visited an outer planet um 
planetoid, uh, you know, in, in such a long time. You know, it was, it was the late sort of um, 70s and 80s when the Voyager craft went to Neptune and Uranus, and this is the first time we've done that. Now, after that, of course, the idea is if they have enough money, um, the craft will head on out into the Kuiper Belt, which is this region of other objects. It's similar to the asteroid belt between Mars and Jupiter, but there's a lot of other objects out there, which essentially Pluto is one. Yeah, because some of them are actually yeah. bigger than Pluto, but yeah, not planets, and that's kind of where the controversy... And there is and there is the, the, the possibility, and a lot of people are pushing those, this idea that there is a, another very large planet out in that region, and one of the reasons they believe that is because many of these objects have very highly elliptical orbits, so they come quite close to the sun or, you know, within range of Pluto and its orbit, but then they head out by, you know, five or ten times that distance and something they think might be skewing them to do that. And it could be another large planet. So some very interesting stuff. And, of course, keep in mind if there is a large planet out there, its orbital period is so long it's well beyond our lifetimes and in fact you know it may even be on the the period of civilization of, of the human race so you know these things can move around very slowly on, on a time scale that we're not used to so it may be that we just haven't looked in the right area in the right right space and we may not see it anyway but interesting times going out there so very exciting and it's waking up on the 6th of december um, so I think uh, there'll either be a whole lot of excited people at NASA or there won't on the 6th of December, which is not far off. Is this the final wake-up before it gets there? Yeah, I think this is it now. They, um, I, I, I don't believe there's another hibernation cycle because they are they are starting to take data now. I mean, if you think about it, it's actually getting close to the region of space where it wants to be in. And it's it's interesting, we just don't know that much about our own solar system in that region. I mean, keep in mind that, um, you know, with Neptune, I mean, the only reason we discovered Neptune was because the orbital predictions of Uranus weren't quite right, and people predicted that there was something beyond that. That'd be my phone ringing. You're not supposed to do that in the studio. Um, you think all my family know not to call me in emergencies? So we, we don't really know that much because these objects are very dim. They're very hard to actually find, and, and we just... You know, we don't have craft out there, so it's it's a difficult challenge. So keep keep watch, folks. We'll keep you informed as we go into next year. But there's a lot happening in terms of space science at the moment. It's extraordinary. Now we're going to take a break because we hopefully will have a call coming in, which is, I suspect, the one hitting my mobile right now, um, from Mark Levinson, who uh, directed the film Particle Fever. We're going to give you some music, and we'll be back in just a moment. Three triple. Ah. Uh, there we go, folks. Uh, we are back. You're listening to Einstein the Gogo on 3RRR, and we are lucky now we have on the phone Mark Levinson, who is the film director of the new film that's coming out this week in Australia called Particle Fever. Mark, can you hear us? I hear you very well. Now, Mark, uh, this is... is working. Oh, yeah, it all sounds great. Um, now, this is a film about uh, CERN and the Large Hadron Collider and, and the discovery of the Higgs boson. Can you, from, from the perspective of the director, I mean, what, what was the purpose of putting this film, film out, that, given there was so much media attention? Um, what, what was the sort of objective of the film overall? I think the objective was really, we, we uh, honestly didn't think it was going to be a, a film about the discovery of the Higgs um, when, when this started. Uh, the, 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 the start of the, 
film actually was in the mind of uh, David Kaplan, who is uh, my partner, who is a theoretical physicist who works at Johns Hopkins, and uh, he's he's in the film for people that uh, see it or have uh, yep. have had the opportunity to see it. He's the uh, ponytailed physicist, and he, you know, was was seeing what that you know this thing was going to be turning on that people had been you know talking about it and planning it for 20 years, and that when it turned on something dramatic was going to happen, and so he was already thinking in 2006. I mean, he was basically just telling anybody he could tell, his friends, family, and, and you know, people said, look, if it's going to be that big, somehow it should be recorded, and it should be a big event. Just the turning on, I mean, let alone what it finds, you know, the idea was something was going to happen when this turned on, and that was what was worth seeing, and what he thought was, uh, you know, that it should be recorded, and I, um, who had uh, started my film career inauspiciously by getting a PhD in theoretical particle physics many years ago, yep. and moved into uh, narrative film, I heard about it, and I also realized that this had the potential to be a dramatic narrative story, and neither of us wanted to tell a traditional, you know, to make a traditional science documentary where we just sort of explain everything, but we thought that, you know, we could look at the characters, if we could really be there and, 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 and show the process and what was happening, that could be an exciting film, uh, no matter what the outcome was. Uh, we ended up being very lucky in many ways because, uh, you know, starting the shoot in 2008, um, I, pretty much everybody said that they would not actually discover the Higgs while we were still shooting. Uh, I think they thought it would be, first of all, so hard. It's such a rare event. Um, it would take them years to understand the detector. And they probably also didn't think that we would still be shooting so many years later. Mm. Um, but, you know, it ended up being even more dramatic than uh, I think we, we expected. And, and so, you know, when you say there was, there was so much attention, well, we were really sort of starting, you know, at an early stage and, and continuing. Um, and I think that's what allowed us, a, 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 you know, to tell a story in a different way and to have access that we had that, that you know, I don't think anybody else really did. Uh, they certainly didn't have the persistence that we did, you know, to keep coming back. Now, now you, you mentioned the access because in some cases... You cannot just—I mean—you cannot just walk into CERN. So, was this all footage that was taken, sort of at a, a you know professional filming level, or, or was some of it actually just taken by the scientists involved? Because you know, there's been such a massive change in the technology available just to your your local sort of home homebrewed filmmaker these days. I, I can imagine some of it could have just been done internally. Oh, no, it was. I mean, it was a real mix of things. I mean, from the beginning, what we wanted to do was, I mean, we were aiming to make a theatrical film. I mean, that's my background. That's what I was looking for. That's what David wanted. And so, you know, we real, you know, the, the principal, you know, cinematography was going to be HD, you know, theater worthy. But right from the beginning, we also had the idea of mixing the footage and giving the characters their own little cameras, these what we call them blog cameras, which were just sort of consumer cameras, just sort of consumer mm. HD. TV cameras, so that they could film themselves when certain things happened. If I wasn't around, you know, something dramatic happened, and and of course something happened very quickly where we needed to put that into place. Um, we then also realized that that uh, provided a way to possibly talk about the science in a more personal way. Um, you know, that was this was the big the big you know conundrum for us in a sense was how do we you know, make an engagement. 
engaging film that deals with an inherently complex subject that's almost like a foreign language. And, you know, how do we deal with the science? And one of the things we did was we used we used these little blog cameras to, to sort of fill in sometimes, and in, in particular with David, but with Monica, too, where, you know, they would, at key points, say things, but they would just be talking directly to this little blog camera as if it was somebody just talking to you personally. And so, you know, that, you know, it, it, it does have a different look, and uh, I think it feels a little more intimate. Um, mm. You know, we also, we used footage that they have. I mean, it was a mix of things. I mean, you know, once once you sort of start going, it's, it's sort of all hands on deck, whatever you can use whenever, when, when you need it. But those were the two principal design decisions right from the beginning. Yeah. Now, now one of the, the young scientists, and I, I think, did you mention her name is Monica? I think um, she, she was definitely the star of the film, I have to say, having watched it last night. She really brought a, a warmth and a, and a humor to, uh, I would say, a particle physics community that I've, I've known well through my career that isn't always like that. It must have been great for you to have such a person that you could put front and center in so much of the movie. Oh, I mean, you know, the second Monica walked in uh, for her first interview, uh, you know, I looked at my cinematographer and we just sort of gave a thumbs up. as like, okay, we're golden, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and the great thing was that she continued to, to be accessible and, uh, and, and was there at the center of things. So, no, she was really an ace in the hole. Um, uh, but I, I, I think, you know, I, and I think the others carried themselves well, too, and the key was that they were really there and they weren't engaging and I think that is the thing that you know you may know what the business community is like but I think you know in the in the, mm. in the outside world most people have a you know very stereotypical vision that, that you know these people are they're dry they're uh, you know uh, boring they're uh, narrow-minded they're unemotional and that's not the case and Monica really epitomizes that so, absolutely uh, you know yeah she's great you, you responded yeah so, Mark, people often feel like science is uh, in another language, and um, and again, you kind of made reference to the fact that the physics community has its own way of, of, of speaking and talking. How did you try and break down that language barrier between the science world and the, the sort of the more human, sort of media-friendly world? Well, I think, you know, as I say, we, we, we made the decision right away that this is not going to be the film that explains everything. And I think the, 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 the really significant fact is, and I think where we're, it was a great advantage that David and I are coming with, with, a, with a physics background, is we really could decide a lot of things that we were just going to leave out. And I think, you know, we, we decided that these are the things we're going to talk about and almost came up with a, uh, a lexicon that these are the terms we're going to deal with and these, these other ones we're not and we're not going to get into it. And that we could be confident that uh, we could make these decisions and, and hope, you know, presumably not be criticized by the physics community, but make it accessible. I, I think that, um, you know, the, the typical uh, inclination of, of, of somebody doing a film like this would be that they want to try to explain everything. And we knew that that was totally impossible anyways. And there are, you know, it takes series. I mean, there's a, I, I know there was a series here in the U.S. that Brian Greene did called The Elegant Universe, but it's, you know, like 10 hours. And so what we were focusing on was the characters and the story. And uh, the idea was to just introduce the science uh, essentially just enough, just in time. So really and coming back to the idea that you would um, be entertaining rather than educating in your purpose. Right. That, 
you know, the idea would be that you were caught up in these people's stories, and incidentally, you'd be learning something, but you would not, that, that would not be front and center. It would not be like you had to decide, oh, I'm going to watch Particle Fever night, tonight because I need to, uh, you know, have my peas or something like that, you know. And if you make um, it too that, scientifically specific, you narrow down your potential audience. If it's only na- aimed at uh, an audience that's very small that can understand that, I'm all for any movie that aims at the more general level that really imparts the excitement around these breakthrough moments in science. Mm. It, it, it was though, Mark. I have to say, you know, as someone who you know is is a physicist by training, you know, I, I was still, you know, my wife and I were able to watch this, and she's a, she's a non-scientist and probably further from science now as a result of being married to me. But um, you know, she she and I could both see it, and there was there was enough in it for both of us. You know, we we both enjoyed it, and I, I can imagine this is the sort of film I have to say that I would love to see you know high school kids watching to be to be frank and 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 getting some inspiration for going on and doing science because it did have that it very much had that moment and i think your your footage at the end in particular that involved peter higgs who you know for 50 years has has waited for this moment was you know it was it was a, a sort of heartwarming sort of aspect and what what was the sort of thinking behind not having more about him was that a deliberate choice or was he just not available or was a deliberate choice. Mm. Although I have a feeling he would have been unavailable because he's very he's very uh, media shy and uh, yep. he you know he's pretty disconnected. He's not really involved with the physics community that much now. He has no cell phone. He does not use a computer. You know uh, he doesn't really even have a phone. So even getting to him is difficult. Um, but you know it really wasn't even a consideration because we made the decision right at the beginning that this was not going to sort of trot out the people who had really you know, established like the standard model of physics. Mm-hmm. Um, these people, you know, these people, you know, many of them had the Nobel Prizes. They, they did great work. They're, they're on every other documentary. But what we wanted was we wanted people, the next generation in some sense, the people that really had everything at stake at the Large Hadron Collider. And so with Savas Demopoulos being sort of the upper spectrum of, of, of you know, age where he didn't work on a standard model, but he's worked on every theory since. Yep. And uh, and so so you know this wasn't I just so so Peter you know fell into that category as well. And in fact, we didn't even really know he was definitely going to show up at the end. And you know at, at at a certain point, I did you know think well maybe we should have introduced him a little earlier, but. I actually think it's even more powerful because people, you don't even realize that he is alive. And so when you suddenly see him at the end, it makes it very poignant, I think. Mm. uh, uh, I know a lot of people tell me that they shed their own tears when he does. Yeah, look, I think um, I think you're right. I think that's why I ask if it was a deliberate choice because I think I think it worked perfectly. It, I'm an extremely harsh critic of films. People will know who've listened to this program and books, and I have to say I really enjoyed this. It's it's a great film about you know one of the seminal discoveries of the last thousand years. And I think it also gives you that gives you that flavour of the fact that there is so much more to do and so much more that we should fund to to learn about. So, congratulations, Mark. I hope it does well. We, we're going to give out a whole lot of double passes in a few moments so people can see it here in Melbourne. Um, I hope people enjoy it. But um, well done, great fu- great film. Thank you very very much. I really appreciate that, and I hope that the rest of uh, Australia does as well. <laughs> Excellent. Great talking to you, Mark, and uh, good luck. We, we we look forward to your next film. Hopefully, it won't take as long to do as this one. I, I second that. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Okay. Thanks, mate. Thanks very much. Okay. Right. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.
That was Mark Levinson, who is the uh, director of the film Particle Fever. Now, folks, if you're interested in going along and seeing it, um, this week on the 27th of November, uh, we have five double passes, uh, which will need to be uh, collected from the Triple R reception desk uh, during office hours. But we do have five double passes. So if you're a subscriber, and uh, I wouldn't bother calling now because enough people have already phoned up, <laughs> I'm going to hand this over to Liv, and she's going to go out and take your calls. We're going to listen to some music and then we'll be back with two undergraduate guests. A rare thing for this show from Monash University and we're going to talk about more physics, believe it or not. Heavy physics show. Three Triple R. Uh, you are listening to 3 Triple R, folks, and believe it or not, we have a couple of those double passes to Particle Fever still available. So uh, Liv is out there begging for people to call up. So if you would like to go and see this film on the 27th this week, 27th of November, then uh, give us a call now, 9388-1027, if you're a subscriber. That will make Liv very happy. Now, uh, we are joined in the studio now by two, uh, well, pretty much former undergraduate students from Monash University. We have Andrew Tasman Powers, or Taz as he likes to be called, and Stephen Samet. H- how are you going, guys? Yeah, good. Good, thanks, Shane. Thanks for having us on. Now, look, it's, this is interesting. People would think, why have we got undergraduate students? Because we normally don't do this. But you guys actually managed to publish some research during your undergraduate um, term, and not just in an average journal, but in what I would regard as probably the best physics journal, which is Physics Review Letters. First of all, I didn't know that people did research during undergraduate. What's going on? Well, we actually had this opportunity at Monash. Um, One of our courses we can take is basically a research project. And Steve had done some research previously and got me involved with that. And, And together we did this project. And basically when we finished it, we were told that we could potentially take this further. And because of that, I mean, we decided to pursue it and complete the necessary research, the further research to actually make this publication quality. Okay. So it was really through the university that this happened. And, yeah, yeah. yeah, it's unusual. Um, now, you, you were working in particular on an area that, uh, and I remember this myself actually, from my early uh, sort of physics days, um, where you're basically fluid dynamics and the issue of turbulence. So when, when you know, the fluid gets uh, sort of modified rather than flowing nicely and so forth. And this is a problem that's been around for a long time. People haven't solved this. What led you to look into this particular problem? Steve, I'll ask, ask you the comment. Uh, yeah, sure. Uh, so Tapio uh, Simula, our um, professor, that's his area of, of research. Uh, so he this this um, topic was something that he was looking into at the time, mm-hmm. um, and he knew that we were very interested in um, simulations, computer simulations. So uh, was bringing the two together, something that we um, we were capable of, of doing, and something that interested uh, him. Mm. And Taz, what, what, give us an idea of the heart of the problem here. I mean, what don't we understand about turbulence? Look, what we were specifically looking at was um, what you would call quantum turbulence, but it comes under this regime of turbulence as a whole. And turbulence, most people, I think, associated it with, you know, that's what's causing your bumps in your, in your flight or whatever. Right. But it's really this kind of problem in fluid mechanics which... Uh, governs, you know, the efficiency of a power station, the efficiency in your car, um, the drag on your car. There's just so many things in everyday life, and no one has a real understanding of it. And Steve and I are actually, we, we did double degrees, so we're also engineers. And it sort of was that our interest in, this was our interest in physics, uh, 
joined with our interest in engineering to mm-hmm. a problem which could hopefully maybe we can make a difference with that. I mean, it's a small step. It's a very small step in the process, but um, it's just fantastic to be part of making a contribution. Mm. Now, in terms of the, um, the actual contribution you guys made, was it all sort of coding here? Was it was it writing software? I, mean, I, 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 sort of, I hear about the turbulence, the plane stuff, but I, I suspect you guys went out there measuring things. Uh, I, I mean, it, there just isn't enough time in an undergraduate course to do all that. So no. was that was that it, Stephen? Were you, were you doing the coding, the actual theoretical stuff? Yeah, that's right. And uh, uh, Tasman and I had a joke to ourselves that... Uh, because we, we were getting photographed in front of the labs uh, as as a show of what we did. Right, yeah. I was saying a, a more appropriate uh, photograph would be on our desks with uh, a computer. Back, uh, yeah. With a computer, yeah, back at home with about <laughs> three empty bottles of coffee and <laughs> yeah, yeah, that, everywhere. That so sounds about right. That was really the, um, the welcome the to the depiction of science as opposed to the actual practice of science. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. the theory, the theory guys, anyway. Yeah, the theory guys, because um, a, com- a computer and a, and a kilo of coffee, I think a day is the yeah the, the, the standard. Um, and in terms of the code. I mean, did you guys have to write this from scratch? We did, yeah. We, mm. we had the option where we could either use a, um, a pre-compiled code, uh, which is available um, as open source code, mm-hmm. uh, but we opted out of that and chose to design it ourselves. And mm. um, that was really to give us flexibility in what we what we were able to do. Yeah, yeah. And Tess, tell us, I mean, what did you find? What what new information did you get about um, about this type of turbulence? Well. Basically, the the premise of the project was to validate a kind of a hypothesis that we could uh, manipulate this kind of fluid in a certain way, and that through that manipulation we could observe something that had previously been unobserved. And it was effectively that we could get a, a snapshot of this turbulent system um, this quantum turbulent system, just with one image of the system, which is incredibly difficult to achieve, and this this hypothesis just made it a lot simpler. Um, and so we managed to validate it with our code. And the idea is that this should be achievable with today's technology mm-hmm. in a lab where we actually do produce these what's known as these superfluids or these Bose-Einstein condensates. Okay. Chris has got a headache. Yeah, I mean, so, <laughs> so um, you're talking about the way in which this, um, being understand turbulence, like the way in which fluids or air or whatever move, um, and you know, in a way t- that has relevance to how your car runs, how your power station runs. So, so what substance is used to model that, and where do you get your actual numbers and data from that goes into your code and your hypothesis? Well, this is a really unique situation compared to this kind of large-scale turbulence. And what we, what we, this thing called a Bose-Einstein condensate is um, they cool this gas down to temperatures with which are about 100 nanokelvin, which is less than one millionth the temperature of space. It's, it's freezing cold. So as close to zero kelvin as you could possibly get, pretty it's, much. It's as pretty much as close as you can get. And when this happens, this uh, gas suddenly transforms into this quantum mechanical object, and you can actually see quantum mechanical behavior on a macroscopic level. Anyway, the whole point is that you can put a turbulent system in here, you can model turbulence, and it's significantly simpler to understand and observe than these large-scale chaotic systems like the vortices behind a plane wing. So we want to look at this because even though it's difficult to see it, it's actually incredibly simple to understand. Mm. Mm. So it gives you a clearer view into it's like it's like dropping a hammer on the moon rather than trying to do it in. Mm. That's quite funny because the quantum turbulence is actually simpler than the classical turbulence. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's <laughs> a surprising thing to hear, actually. Most people expect it to be the other way around, but um, but I guess when you take out all the mischievous components that are, that are going into the system with a, with a large-cell turbulence, 
scenario it, it does become simple guys look it's 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 a great achievement well done um you're going on to greater things in science or you're moving out and uh, becoming engineers yeah i've uh, recently yeah, secured a job already gone yep. yeah <laughs> good work and Taz, you, you're, you're doing honors is that right or you just finished honors um well i've just finished uh my engineering component of my degree right. and honestly this research has just motivated me to be yeah. to be further involved and um yesterday i finished what's known as the graduate record exam and i'm hopefully going to be applying to do phds in the united states but Fantastic. we'll see how that goes well you know one physics review letters paper uh, is not going to hurt your uh, hurt your chances there so I may be banking on it a little bit yeah so. mate, milk it for all it's worth it's got it you got a good 10 years in it before it's completely milked um congratulations guys and um keep up the good work and hope your careers uh, continue as well as they've started thanks, thanks very much three triple Now, we do have another guest on the phone now. We have James Godwin. James, are you there? Yes, I'm here. Good morning. Uh, Dr. James Godwin is from the Australian Regenerative Medical Medicine Institute down at Monash University. And, James, we've had a few of your colleagues on over recent weeks, but it's great to have uh, you on the phone. Now, you work on the interesting uh, little guys, oxalotls. Tell us why they are so so important. Well, axolotls are amphibians, so their biology is very similar to frogs, but they have a remarkable ability to, to repair a range of injuries. Uh, and uh, they, some of the things that they can repair include they can regrow limbs after they get bitten off by one of their, their uh, siblings, or they can re- regenerate their spinal cord or their heart after, after injury. And pretty much they can do this throughout their whole life. So my research is aimed at understanding how they can achieve perfect repair throughout their lives and whether we can translate that to improving human repair uh, in a range of clinical scenarios. Do, do we have an understanding of um, just how unique they are in the animal kingdom in that regard? I mean, it's not something that you hear about very often, the idea of repairing your spinal cord and things like that. Yeah. So, so there are a range of examples among very, many vertebrates, such as uh, zebrafish can regenerate their hearts and, and parts of their tail and, and part of their retina. Um, there are other examples, such as lizards. They can re- regenerate their tails, but they can't regenerate limbs or hearts or any of those sorts of things. Um, and frogs, surprisingly, have the ability to regenerate at very early stages of development. And then they lose that when they become adults, kind of like us. So mm-hmm. by studying a range of different organisms, we probably could get closer to understanding what underlying mechanisms might help us achieve that goal in humans. Now, you can answer a question for me. I, I believe I heard this somewhere, but it could have been actually just in a dream. Um, but is it true that when we're in utero, we don't scar? That is correct. So very early in gestation, uh, we can undergo injuries that repair scar-free. And that seems to be related to the immune system and also because we're growing and developing. And interestingly, uh, we can regenerate parts of the heart uh, within the first uh, few days of life. In mice particularly, they, we can, rege- they can regenerate their mouse, uh, the, the mouse heart up to about day five to seven, and then all of a sudden they scar like an adult. And so somewhere along the line of development, we lose this scar-free wound healing. Mm, it's amazing. So when people uh, think of the immune system, they often think is the immune system's there to fight disease. How is it that the immune system's involved in scarring and regeneration? Right. 
So the immune system are like the, the first responders to a car crash. They kind of like the ambulance and the, and, 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 and they, they kind of uh, are controlled by other parts of the immune system, like the policemen, which we call T-cells. And, and so we have these early responders and then late responders, and they kind of influence how the, the wreckage is cleaned up after an injury. And so... Uh, Obviously, if cells need to grow and repair, those immune cells that are there to fight infection primarily also influence the repair process. So by understanding how we can uh, improve or look at, look at animals that have that same repair mechanism but their immune cells repair more efficiently, we might be able to tweak the human immune system in a wound scenario to improve repair outcomes. Mm. Now, we've been looking at x levels for quite a while. I mean, what, what have we learned to date, James? Well, um, I mean, axe models are a very classical model. They've been studied for hundreds of years, but they sort of, not a lot of people have been studying them en masse. And only recently have we, have we got a range of genetic tools and, 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 uh, and a massive of research, a surge of research over the last 10, 15 years that's really sort of allowed to do clever things where before we were sort of uh, hamstrung by the lack of tools and uh, technology. But now we can actually use that model more effectively, and I think we're going to see a lot more uh, information coming forward on how we can understand regeneration using these animals. So do we have an axolotl genome or genomes of other related amphibians yet? Um, so there is a, there's a frog genome. Um, the thing about the axolotl, we don't have a full sequence genome at the moment uh, because it raises a huge technical challenge. They have a genome which is estimated to be at least 10 times bigger than human. And they've got the same number of genes, but they have extra bits, I guess, in between the genes which regulate genes. We were just and talking about this earlier on the show, comparing mice and humans, and I guess comparing humans to amphibians is a whole other league. It is. I mean, we have a lot of similar genes to them, uh, and they may have extra genes that we're looking into, but it doesn't really matter uh, because we can look at those those uh, differences and maybe exploit them in a, in a wound scenario. And uh, many of the proteins that we find are involved in regeneration in, in salamanders are also present in humans. Mm. I, I think it's pretty exciting from a gardening perspective. You know, if you snap a, a twig <laughs> off a succulent and just pop it in a in a in a pot, you know, not only does it regrow that missing bit, but the the, the whole you know plant itself can regrow and regenerate. Um, is there is, does conservation go back that far to to plants? Um, well, uh, that's interesting. I mean, a lot of, there are a lot of overlaps with basic um, cell biology, but I guess that. There's a lot of ways regeneration can be achieved. So the starfish, for instance, can snap off an arm uh, and a new starfish can generate from that single arm. That's kind of called fission. It's very similar to what you would find in, in the plant kingdom. But, you know, in, in vertebrates, it's in, in mammals, and, and it sort of it becomes very limited in mammals, and the, the mechanisms in all vertebrates seems to vary. Hmm. James, are there any applications for this with prosthetics? I know that limbs of humans are obviously more complicated with bones and so forth, but is there any attempts to go down that path? Uh, well, prosthetics are an, uh, an alternative. I guess that understanding how to, how to repair uh, tissue is, is a complementary approach. Uh, I think that I mean, my research is directed towards uh, overcoming that huge burden of, of, of um, maybe possibly one day regrowing an arm. I mean, a salamander can do it. Uh, so it's possible, it is achievable, it's just we have to work out how. It's maybe more complicated, but um, there are other contexts, such as spinal cord injury, which obviously are a lot 
sort of easier to overcome. I mean, the, the problem with spinal cord injury is that uh, after injury, you get a wall of, of, of scar tissue, which, which basically is a physical and chemical barrier for any of the wires to reconnect the spinal cord. But in fish and amphibians, that scar tissue doesn't create the wall, and therefore you get perfect repair. So if we can emulate that in humans, I think that would probably be much easier to achieve than, than an arm, for instance. But I think both are achievable. James, you're at the Australian Regenerative Medicine Institute. Uh, how does that um, affect the way in which you work in terms of um, looking at how your research um, sits next to people who are working in the human sort of area? Yeah, so, I mean, our institute uh, is primarily focused in looking at the underlying mechanisms of, of tissue repair and development, which really uh, are sort of encompassed in, in regeneration. We have a range of different organisms, ranging from, from uh, fish to, to um, mouse and, and, uh, and uh, amphibians and, and all sorts of, of sort of chicken and, and all sorts of different organisms that tell us little bits of information about different cellular processes in different organisms to look for common themes. And we have a, a group of, of, of uh, accomplished scientists that really work together as a team, like a pipeline to discovery that will one day hopefully um, make some inroads into the clinic. Mm. James, I'm, I'm always very curious as to the sort of evolutionary aspects of some of these, these advantages that we see in certain members of the animal kingdom. Is this something, you know, when, when we talk about having this capability to some degree when we're first conceived and we're, we're sort of in our early stages of development, is this something that you think we have lost in which case, if that's true, can we not just turn it back on somewhere in our genome, hidden away? You know, is there a, there a part of our DNA that still contains this information? Yeah, it's possible. I mean, the thing is that you know, in early stages of life, uh, as I mentioned, the mouse heart can regenerate, and the, the, the muscle of the heart, the meat of the heart, if you like, mm. um, is 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 lost in in uh, in adult humans after injury. So if you have a, a cardiac arrest. Uh, you end up with eventually um, tissue, uh, um, the cardiomyocytes, the meat, the muscle dies, and it doesn't get replaced as an adult. But mm. you can replace that um, when you're very, very young, uh, in, you know, in, in early stages of life. And so if we can understand how the salamander maintains that and how he, why humans and mice switch that off, um, we would be in a good position. So um, I, I work very closely with one of the world's foremost experts on heart regeneration and, uh, and uh, gene recombinating, um, Nadia Rosenthal, and uh, we look at both how the salamander does it and how the mouse does it or how the mouse doesn't do very, well, very good repair. And we compare and contrast the two models to look for ways to exploit the salamander in the mouse model. Look, James, it's fascinating stuff. I have to say, you know, it's one of those elements of the the uh, the broader sort of biological space that we can look in that is just incredible that some of these creatures can still do this and and it is always a, a big surprise when people hear that we can we can do it when we're um when we're first conceived as well so hopefully we'll find a way um although it may involve uh, really tweaking our genome i suspect based on the uh, the complexity levels you're talking about but hopefully we'll find a way to make use of some of this and um and put it into practice in the near future Yes, uh, that's, that's my goal, that's my hope and my dream. If mm. we can understand how, how their immune system deals with injury and then modify that in a clinical scenario in humans, modify the way our cells behave in a particular wound, we might be able to improve human health outcomes. Sounds fantastic. Dr. James Godwin from the Australian Regenerative Medicine Institute down at Monash University. Thanks very much for talking to us. Thank you for your time. Bye.
Right. Uh, interesting stuff there. I can't believe that, you know, these law guys do it. And I was, I was amazed when I first heard that we could do it when we were first conceived. Yeah, and it must, it must come at some cost um, in an evolution sense because otherwise everyone would be doing it. And I think it's fascinating trying Have to understand. Have you seen the salamander? Yeah. <laughs> They're not going to the moon. <laughs> there's, always, there's a trade-off there, isn't there? There's there always a trade-off. a trade-off. So it's interesting, you know, some species keep these things and others don't. So, well, um, we're going to have to hand over to Edith because our time is pretty much up. It has been a massive show that we've uh, guests are plenty, giveaways are plenty, people in the studio. Um, we've had a lot of fun. Dr. Jennifer Henry, good to have you in the studio for a change. Thanks. Crystal said she's not used to seeing my mouth move and hearing the voice <laughs> at the same time. <laughs> she said the same thing to me just a couple of weeks ago. Uh, Dr. Crystal, great to have you. Always a pleasure. And we'll see you again soon. Liv's been doing our Twitter feed. I think we're hitting 100,000, aren't we, Liv? Is that right? We are. Uh, she's giving me a nod. Take that, all you Twitter people who have a large number of followers like Dr. Crystal, but she's going to always beat us. We're going to hand over to Edith now. I'm Dr. Shane. It's been a pleasure telling you all about science today, and we hope to do so again next week, so join us. Until then, uh, here is Edith. This has been a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.